folks. You're listening to Solutions to Violence. We're happy to have you join us today. You're listening to Forward Radio, WFMP, LP, 106.5 FM. Solutions to Violence is a program of and sponsored by Forward Radio. Forward Radio is an affiliate of the Global Fellowship of Reconciliation, following as part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our speaker, not station. If you would like to share your views, please contact us by sending us an email at solutions to violence 18 at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. Our guest today is Katura Heron. Katura Heron is the policy strategist at the American Civil Liberties Union of Kentucky and a Louisville civil rights activist that was recognized by the Louisville Courier Journal as one of the, quote, women of the movement, end quote. Katura Heron drafted an ordinance to ban no-knock warrants and led the fight that persuaded the Jefferson County Metro Council to adopt a ban that would forbid Louisville Metro Police from instituting no-knock warrants. Ms. Heron, you're currently the policy strategist for the ACLU, that's American Civil Liberties Union, Kentucky. First, tell us about the ACLU. What's what's the purpose and, and their philosophy? Yeah, so first off, ACLU has been around for 100 years, and so I think that that is important as we begin to talk about the context of ACLU and, and, and who we are and what um, ACLU has done. But just know that this organization um, has been around uh, for 100 years, and the overall purpose of ACLU is to preserve and protect the liberties and privileges of individuals based on the Bill of Rights. And so, you know, those liberties can include uh, freedom of speech, equal protection under the law, due process, and things such as personal privacy. So, okay, Kajura, but historically, the ACLU has supported what many would consider liberal causes. But they've also supported the rights of conservative organizations, like the Ku Klux Klan, for example, to express their ideology. What's your position on the ACLU's support of everyone's right to express their ideas, even when their philosophy disagrees with your own? Right. I mean, I, I think that, again, just having that historical context of this organization um, being around 100 years, and, you know, when you look at the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, when it was drafted years ago, it, it didn't have any type of uh, racial justice or gender justice or equity included in that. And so I think that when you hear about ACLU supporting organizations such as the Ku Klux Klan, having that historical context, in a way it makes sense. And and, and I think that what we're seeing now um, is, is that over the years, ACLU has started to shift. And I think that what is important that people need to know is that you have ACLU National, which the national headquarters, but you also have um, individual affiliates. And so each individual affiliate has the autonomy to pretty much decide what issues that they get involved into and what issues that they don't get involved into. And for myself, sometimes it is a battle of uh, uh, seeing or not agreeing with uh, what maybe one affiliate does um, or what national does and how does that line up with my own uh, personal values? But I also think that one thing that's important is that we have been having these conversations in our local affiliate, and we do um, keep a gender justice and a racial justice uh, framework, and, and that is what is most important. And so when it comes to our affiliate, I'm confident that if we ever come to a place where we have to make a decision based on just regular general uh, civil liberties in regards to gender justice or 
racial justice, I am confident that our affiliate um, will definitely weigh into ensuring that whatever position that we take, that we take a racial justice and gender justice lens to that. Still, ACLU has supported uh, civil rights and opposed war and supported rights of the LGBTQ community and, and community and, and advocated for special, well, not special, but sustainable environment. Is that correct? Why is it? Yeah, yeah, that is correct. And and, and I, I think that we, we, no matter where we are in society, we, we have to think about history. And I think that, you know, before uh, 50 years ago or 100 years ago, some of the things that we're getting behind now was not necessarily the forefront. And, and I think that as you're seeing a society that is changing um, and you see in ideologies that's changing, you're going to see ACLU now uh, get behind LGBTQ rights um, and you're going to get them behind environmental justice. And so I think that it starts to expand more than just civil liberties. And I think that when you look at the Constitution and again, when it was funded, who uh, founded, who it was founded by, who it was created by, those folks didn't have that ideology in their mind frame. And so we have to shift with what society is and we have to shift with what, you know, communities need. And I think that that's why you're seeing a different position with ACLU um, across the nation. Is ACLU a nonprofit? Yes, ACLU is a, a nonprofit, uh, a bipartisan organization. And how does it uh, how does it how does it operate? Does it does it have volunteers or does it have paid personnel? Yeah, so it goes both and. And so um, here at the affiliate here in um, Kentucky, I think we have a. Th- 13 to 15 staff. I should probably know that right offhand. But I think we have about 15 staff here at our affiliate. Um, some affiliates, um, some of the larger affiliates have about 30 staff. And then you have some affiliates that have smaller staff. And I think that one thing that should be known is that several years ago, the affiliate here in Kentucky only had seven staff. And so we have pretty much doubled our capacity and staff. And of course, we do a lean heavy on volunteers to help uh, reach other folks. To, to get donations, to get people to make phone calls, to just get people to be involved. And, you know, one thing that's, that is important when you're talking about these types of fights, it takes community to make an organization uh, like the ACLU run uh, properly. You said it doubled in size. Why did it double in size? That's unusual. Right. I, I think what we saw, you know, in, in our past uh, presidential election, we just saw a, a shift in, in a shift in the nation. You saw um, a, a shift in culture and climate and communities. You saw that there was a, um, a huge attack on uh, gender justice. We saw that there was a huge attack on, on women's rights. And so I think that when you see a intentional attack on a certain type of rights for a certain type of people, then it is important that you expand. And then also one thing that has, has been different is our affiliate is really involved right now in the criminal justice system. Mass incarceration has impacted black and brown communities and poor white communities at a astounding rate. And and so most of the staff that we have gotten in the last few years has been to help push back and try to make a dent and, and end uh, mass incarceration. And then also really look at our criminal legal system uh, to see what type of improvements can be made there. The bail bond organization, you're involved with that? Yeah. Well, um, you said the bail bond organization? Yeah. Yeah, so, so you have pre-trial and a bail is a huge thing here um, in Kentucky. There's a large number of folks who are incarcerated that are being held uh, pre-trial, meaning that 
Um, they are being held inside our local jails because they can't afford to pay a, a bail or a bond. And so I think that when you're looking at trying to end mass incarceration, that is a big driver of mass incarceration, especially um, here in Kentucky. I think that locally at the Louisville Metro Detention Center, um, I believe it's somewhere between uh, 60 and 70 percent of those folks who are being held are being held pretrial, meaning that they have not been found um, guilty. The only thing that they're guilty of is not having enough money to pay for bail in order for them to get out. So, Katura, where does the funding come from for, for uh, Kentucky ACLU? We have membership, and so we have individual folks like you and I who can donate. Some people donate $5 a month, and some people may donate um, $100 and then um, obviously, you know, we have uh, uh, funds coming in from our national ACLU national who funds us and then also other, you know, large donors that we have. And so literally anyone can help fund the work that we're doing at ACLU, whether it's one dollar or a thousand dollars. So nothing from the government? No, no, absolutely not. OK, so Katrina, Aaron, you are policy strategist for the American Civil Liberties Union of Kentucky. What's the mission of the policy strategist? Yeah, so my mission, and, and I'll say it's my per, my own personal mission, I, I think that it's important as I do the work that I carry some of my own personal goals and, and values into my work. And so the, the first thing that it's important for me is that I am lifting up the community voice. And so um, most of the work that I am doing, I would probably say about 90% of the work that I do and what drives me is, you know, what it is that community folks are asking for and need and want. And then also the other part of uh, my position is ensuring that I am collaborating with our communications team and I'm collaborating with our legal team to make sure that any type of ordinance, whether it's local here in Louisville or any type of uh, policies and laws at the state level that are passed, anytime that any of those laws are passed or talked about, that it does have a, a racial justice lens in it. And, and I want to be very um, clear about me and my position. I'm actually an abolitionist. And so I believe that the systems that we have operating today uh, need to be completely tore down and rebuilt and started over. And so I, I think that oftentimes um, in my role, I come to this battle of uh, reform and complete abolition. And what does that mean and what does that look like? But the forefront of my work is ensuring that whatever room that I'm walking into, whatever policies that I'm reading, whatever policies that I'm drafting, that um, I have the communities, I have the community at the forefront of my mind and making sure that I am operating um, and working in a way that um, is going to bring a full liberation to folks in the community. So what is it you want to abolish now? I mean, I think that when you look at our nation, we can talk about the, the criminal justice system and policing, for example, because I feel like that that's where most of my work is starting to fall into. But anytime you have a system that was created and built and there's a group of people that were left out of that conversation, then that system is not going to operate in the best interest of them. And so for me, I believe that we have a, a nation, we have a community, we have a society on the national level, local here in Louisville and in Kentucky 
Kentucky that we depend too much on a policing to fix some of our societal um, issues and problems. I think that when you speak to police officers, they talk about how oftentimes they respond um, to calls that they have no business responding to. And so I, it, it's my belief that how we have uh, funded police, um, how we have depended upon police to fix our societal problems is not the answer. And so um, I believe we have to completely tear down those structures of policing and start over and, and figure out what that looks like. For example, last summer I was driving down a 15th and Oak, I believe it was, and there was a, an elder man on the corner and he was exposed. He had his pants down. He was exposed and he clearly uh, looking at him visually appeared to have some type of um, mental health issues. He appeared to be houseless. And so I was at the light and, and I rolled my window down and I said, hey, sir, you should pull your pants up. And, and I said that to him because I was fearful if police came and had contact with him, what would happen to him and what would that interaction look like? And, and it was kind of funny because he, he said to me, um, mind your business. And I just kind of laughed and, you know, went on. But he obviously was in need. However, me as a citizen, I didn't feel comfortable with calling the police, so I didn't call anybody. But I envision and imagine a community that we have another type of uh, emergency uh, group or situation that if we see someone like that in need, that we can call this other um, emergency response team that could respond to him um, to make sure that he was safe and anyone that had interactions um, with him would be safe. Okay. You know, you mentioned paring down the police department or others. Uh, you're not talking about defunding in terms of in terms of taking all the money away from them. You're talking about restructuring in some ways, right? Right. Absolutely. I think that when people say defund, you know, the word kind of gets a little convoluted, and you know, people freak out and like, oh my gosh, they don't want any type of policing, and they want to take all the money away. Right. Uh, but I think that what we have to understand and look at is that we have been defunding education for years. We have taken away money from our educational system from years, whether it's students have less access to extracurricular activities or less access to arts and music programs within schools. Kids don't have books anymore. And so we have literally been defunding from our um, educational system for, for years. And so when we talk about defunding police, I like to use the term divest and invest. I, I like to use the term of divest and taking away uh, from um, uh, policing budgets and investing more money into uh, the community. And I think that that can look like uh, several different things. Like right now here in Kentucky, over the last two years, we saw a school safety bill that mandated uh, school resource officers or armed police to be in our school system. And so that's money that has been taken away from somewhere that's saying that we're going to invest in police in our schools. And so for me, it's how do we not put that money into school resource officers, but how do we put that money into more counselors in our schools? And so that's that's one way that you can divest from police and invest in communities. Another way, like I said earlier, the example that I said is we should have some type of emergency response units that is responding to community needs. Um, what does it look like to have mental health units that are responding instead of police officers that are responding? We know that anytime a police is called out, you know, they are, are there to do a job and you hear them say that they are there to 
um, make sure that um, people were not breaking the law or to protect the law. And police officers have talked about how they respond to things that they shouldn't respond to. And so we just like the like person on the street that you saw. Yeah, yeah. And so and so I think that we just have to really reimagine, you, you know, what that what that looks like and what that means for each individual community, whether it's um, by zip code or block by block. I think that we can come up with different ways to invest and use that money. Yeah, I think the war on drugs that started back during the Reagan administration has been a total failure because it's been an attempt by law enforcement to correct a mental health issue, drug abuse, when in fact that system hasn't worked. We need what what happens in Canada, for example, they everyone has health care insurance. So if you have a problem with the drug or drug abuse, chemical abuse, you can get help regardless of your economic status. So that that would be a change that would has been proven to work for Canada anyway, a more effective way to approach the drug issue. Absolutely. And I, and I think that one thing that is interesting as you bring up the war on drugs, when you look at uh, the different legislative policies that was uh, created coming down from the federal government, those policies that were created, they trickled down into states and then they trickled down to individual communities. And so what we saw was this war on drugs or tough on crime philosophy. And when cities and states began to adopt some of these policies, then they were getting funding uh, for police. And so it, it was like they were moving uh, simultaneously. And so you have this structure that has been created that we have failed as a society to respond in a proper way. And, um, you, you know, another reason why I, I believe that we have to uh, literally um, start over from our uh, laws and our policies all the way down to the tactics that police use every day when they are uh, police in our communities. Looking at the uh, Verona, uh, Verona Taylor case, you looked at the movement uh, that demanded justice for her and her family and African-American communities decided that an ordinance that would ban no-knock warrants passed by the Jefferson County Metro government was, was a place to start. First, explain no-knock warrants, and then tell us why the Louisville Police Metro Police Department should, shouldn't use those anymore. Right, and, and so first I would like to start off by saying that um, the reason why I, I got behind this and decided that this was something that needed to be done was um, as a black woman uh, living here in Louisville, I, I didn't know what else to do. You know, this was a very tragic event and I recognized and realized that I had access. I've helped write policies and ordinances before and I felt like that it was important that I used um, the privileges and the skills and the access to resources to really change something. And so basically what no-knock warrants, the ordinance is saying, what Brianna's law was saying is that police can no longer go into your house without announcing themselves and that whenever they do serve any type of uh, warrant, that they need to turn on their body cameras five minutes before and five minutes after that warrant is served. I think that it's important because we've seen here in Louisville and we've seen historically across the nation that no-knock warrants have been used on black communities. Uh, they have been used on uh, low-level drug offenders. And that is, as I was talking earlier, that has been another tactic that our government ha has used to combat this war on drugs. 
And and I think that what's also important, it was something that, you know, Tom Wine said that there's no amount of, of drug money, there's no amount of drugs that is worth a human life, whether it's the human life of a police officer or the life of the folks who are behind the door or the neighbors that are around. They're just dangerous. And I think that as much money, going back to the money, as much as money and resources our police departments have, they should be able to do adequate enough um, investigation, adequate enough uh, surveillance in order to, if, if they feel like that there is a drug dealer who is dangerous, they, they should, they have adequate enough resources to do the proper surveillance to apprehend someone uh, without this type of a raid and tactic. But the LMPD explained that knocking on a door and asking permission to enter a residence give the occupants uh, suspected of dealing in illegal drugs an opportunity to dispose of those drugs. That's the justification for buying no-knock warrants. Yeah, I mean, again, you're talking about low-level drug offenders. I think that if our police department was going and getting the folks and the people who are distributing drugs across the whole state of Kentucky or who are, you know, the folks who are the real kingpins or who have this huge elaborate drug operation, they're not going to be able to dispose of drugs. I mean let's get real like like if there was a, a huge large amount of, of of drugs in a place you're not going to be able to destroy it i mean you probably can flush some of it down the sink or down the toilet but if there's a large amount of drugs inside of a place by the time the police get in you're not going to be able to get rid of that evidence and so i, I think that you know them um using that is just an excuse to continue to, to brutalize our communities and so you know, like I said before, Tom, Tom Wine said it clearly, there's no amount of drugs or drug money that, that is worth it. Okay. Well, you know, I'm impressed with uh, your willingness to go before the Metro Council and, and provide and uh, put that uh, bill in their, their hands. Uh, convincing them to pass an ordinance is, is it's going to be pretty tough. Now, that's it's not easy. Uh, how do you have to provide or persuade Metro Council to pass an ordinance like this, like the no-knock warrant? Right. I think that um, most of the folks at Metro Council, they knew that something needed to be done. I think that because of the tragedy of Brianna's case, it definitely put pressure on them to do something. I think that uh, for Metro Council, they felt that they needed to do something quick for the community uh, to just show a uh, solidarity uh, for the community and to try and build that uh, relationship with the community and, the, and that trust. I think the thing that is, is super important as well is, is that at that point of time, you know, everybody had their eyes on Louisville, Kentucky and still do. Um, I, I think that you have the people locally who um, are their constituents, you have people across the state, you have people across the nation who were saying something needs to be done. And so I, I think that the pressure that they felt um, from that, they really had to make a decision and they had to make the right decision. And so when we um, originally started drafting the ordinance, you know, myself and, and my team, we within 48 hours started uh, drafting an ordinance and we found out that actually Metro Council was in the process of drafting an ordinance themselves. And so we gave them a super rough draft. When I say super rough draft, I mean like th only three sets of eyes had seen the draft that we had given to them. And What's funny and interesting is that the language that we were fighting against at the very end was actually the language that we drafted. 
And so there was one point of time in, in, in the language of the bill that said that no knock warrant should be banned unless it was a kidnapping or some type of act of, of terrorism and some type of extenuant circumstances. And at the end of the day, that is the language that we were fighting against to get that complete total ban. And what happened was after thinking about it, you know, after your adrenaline uh, calms down a little bit and, and thinking about it, we realized that, hold on one second, they don't need a warrant in those situations at all anyway. Typically in those situations, there are emergency calls and um, they're able to respond and, and act um, on site. And so, you know, it, it took a, a huge team of folks to make those calls to uh, Metro Council members. There was one point in time, if you called City Hall, the voicemail or, you know, what you got was as soon as you called, it rang once and it said, if you were calling regarding Breonna Taylor's case, uh, press one for all other inquiries, press two. And, and I think that that just shows the power of um, the people and, and how many folks were calling um, demanding for, for some type of change. But you had to do quite a bit of organizing in order to get people to, to call a representative and put pressure on council. Yes, absolutely. It took a lot of organizing. And I think what we saw was people were, were already mobilized. People were already out. And so it was just a matter of getting that information out and saying, this is what I need you all to do. This is what we need you all to do today. Here's the numbers that you need to call. Here's the people you need to call. And this is what you need to be saying to them. And really just getting that information out of like what no-knock warrant, uh, what that ordinance was going to do and why it was important. Once you get information out to people, people are, are going going to make the calls. I think that one thing that we that I've learned um, and, and, and I think that we all can say that we've seen is that people want change. People want change and people want to be involved in change. The thing is, is that a lot of times people don't know how to do that. And so it's important that we teach people how to do that and, and we tell them what they need to do. And once you uh, tell people what it is that you need them to do, um, they're willing to do it because they want to see their communities change and they want to, to see, um, they, they want justice. They want justice, not just for Breonna Taylor, but they want justice for all the other families who've been impacted by no-knock warrants, and people want to make sure that communities are safe for everybody. Okay, so you got the no-knock warrant ordinance passed. What other kinds of reforms would you like to see implemented within the Metro Police Department? Yeah, I mean, wow, I think that that's a, that's a very, uh, for me, that's a, that's a lot of a question. I think that there are several small pieces of police type bills that we can see, such as banning chokeholds, implementing a duty to act, meaning that when police officers witness another police officer engaging in some type of excessive force, that they have a, a duty to act and stop that police officer. I, I think that there's been policies that have been used throughout the history of, of Louisville Metro that they talk about um, pulling people over because they have a busted headlight. And so I think that just getting them to not engage in those type of pop those type of practices would be great but but i think that the largest thing for me personally is uh trying to figure out qualified immunity and trying to figure out what does it really mean to hold um, individual police officers accountable whenever they are engaged in behavior that they shouldn't be engaged in and one way that i've been describing it in the past is any other business or any other occupation when you 
identify a, ba a bad employee, there's a way to discipline them and there's a way to um, eventually get rid of them. You have lawyers that can um, lose their their license to practice. You have doctors who can lose their um, license to practice. And so uh, police officers, um, it seems like are is the only occupation who's not held accountable to the standards that everyone else is. And, and I think at the end of the day, what we need to see or what I would like to see is a way that, and, and that's not just within Louisville um, Metro because of the way the um, FOP contracts are, the way qualified immunity is at the federal level. In, federal order of a police FOP federal order of police right yes yes sorry yes and and so I, I think that because you have qualified immunity and you have the police bill of rights there's so many different levels of protection that police have and that's just not an issue here locally in Louisville that's an issue nationwide and I think that if we really want to see a difference in policing and really build that community trust we're going to have to figure out a way to make sure that when police are identified as um, being bad uh, police officers that there's a way to get rid of them and and, and, and I don't know um, the, the answer to that I don't I'm still trying to learn and figure out the best way to tackle that but but i definitely think that 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 is the bigger fight um that is the longer fight and that is the most important fight that we have you know if there's any aclu action that is related to the the uh overt action or anti-riot practices that uh used by the crowd control forces that we've seen a lot of that lately yeah so we we also i, I guess i did fail to mention that but we um also believe there should be guidelines um actually not even guidelines that um police officers should not be able um, to use that type of militarized uh, tactics and weapons on, on people protesting. I think it's ridiculous. I myself am a victim of being tear gassed by LMPD early on in, in May. That Friday in May, I, I believe the date was the 28th or 29th of May on, the, on that Friday that I was literally standing in the street doing nothing and I was tear gassed. And so um, I, I think that there's no reason for it, and I think that it's harmful. We we also saw that LMPD, one of the, or I don't know, remember if it was LMPD or K Kentucky State Police or who it was, but someone literally pointed a flash bomb type gun weapon to a reporter and literally shot the reporter who was just standing there. And so I think that when we talk about the way police are reacting to people protesting, it, it's ridiculous and shameful. Yeah, there's been, uh, there's been some uh, question even about, I think this was on 60 Minutes just, just recently, about the lack of training of the use of some of these weapons. Uh, that's not even, uh, you know, it's not even required of many of the uh, crowd control force. Yeah, and, and, and I think that that just goes to, to, to show why they don't need to be used. I mean, um, at point blank period, I, I think that it's, you know, it, it's unfortunate that you have people wanting to, you have people that are literally protesting injustice of, of things that are happening locally and across the nation and the response from the police is to continue to terrorize people like it makes absolutely no sense so the u.s census reports demonstrates 22 percent of the jefferson county population is, is african-american local metro police department august 20th august 2020 dem demographics reports states that blacks make up only 12% of the Louisville Metro Police Department. If increasing the number of African-American police within the LMPD is part of the answer, how do we go about making those increases? Well, 
I, I don't think that that is part of the answer. Um, me personally, like I said, I'm an abolitionist, and I think that the way um, the structure of police, the, the structure, the historical context of policing, I don't think that um, it is going to work. Do I think that it would help some community relations? Possibly, but that's not the answer. And I, I think that, um, you know, we, we can, there's several things that do need to happen. I, I think that, you know, one of the things that could possibly help build community relationships is to have people who are from communities, who know communities, have them police in those areas and communities. But but I also think that if the main ideology of policing and the same tactics are used of if someone has a busted taillight, pull them over, even if it's all black police force, if those are the same tactics that are used, we're still going to have the same issue. So do I think that that would help community relations? Yes, but it's not, it's not the answer. We have to literally and radically change the way we police. We have to, literally, we have to radically change how we're funding police, and uh, we have to radically change um, what it means, what, what safety means to black communities. And I don't know that, I don't know that we're, we're there yet. Actually, I know that we're not there yet. And so, you know, th- there's a lot of different things that, that need to happen and, and, and can happen, but I don't think that hiring more black police officers is going to make a dent um, in any type of um, issues that we're seeing in Louisville as long as the same policies and procedures and tactics are used by LMPD. Okay. So in order to make those changes, the changes you you like to see, it's going to take a coalition, several organizations working together in order to bring about reform within the LMPD. So what's your plan for putting those coalitions together? Yeah, so I think that right now, um, one of the things that I've been doing, you know, behind scenes is, is talking to several different people in the community. And when I say people in the community, I mean folks at the grassroots level, Um, people in community who have been brutalized by the police, but then also talking to elected officials, um, talking talking to other organizations such as uh, victim advocates groups, talking to business leaders, just talking to other people who have influence within our community. And I think the biggest challenge is to get everyone on the same working page. I think that everyone knows and understands that there needs to be some type of change for our community, but getting folks to agree with how to get there or what that what those things are is, is the most difficult part and piece. And so um, those conversations are being held right now. And again, we, we are definitely in, in the infant stage. And, and I um, have to be real and honest that I think that the real change that we want to see um, in our community, it's not something that's going to happen within six months. It's not something that's going to happen in a year. Um, I think that we're talking about a five to 10 year period before we will really see that impactful change in our community. And, you know, it, it took a, a long time for us to get here. Um, as far as mass incarceration, as far as uh, policing tactics. And so it's also going to take a long time uh, to get away from here. Um, One of the folks that I have been listening to a lot is the late Congressman John Lewis. And one of the things that he has said, and and I keep near and dear to my heart, is that this is a a lifetime of a fight. And I think that the things that we want to see for our community is going to take several years, and we have to keep that in mind. And we can't get tired, um, and we can't get weary, and we have to make sure that we have those values, um, those real values, um, and keep those values at the top of of our minds and lists as we are creating and crafting uh, what we want to see in our community. 
So, Katura, what are the organizations that you're talking to that uh, could create a coalition powerful enough to change policy? Yeah, so, I mean, at this point, there's not an, an official coalition, but I think that, you know, the first thing that that I've been doing is listening to um, folks in the community. So, um, talking to um, Black Lives Matter, talking to El Surge, um, talking to... Um, Louisville Stand Up for Racial Justice. Stand up for racial justice. Talking to the Kentucky Alliance, the Fairness uh, Campaign. Really talking to those grassroots organizations who have touches and are directly connected to people who have been impacted. Also, um, have been in conversation with uh, for folks from um, the Urban League. And again, these conversations haven't been like any type of formal conversations, but. It, it's the work, right? It, it's the work that, that we have to do and the work that has been uh, done and created um, based on the things that we've seen uh, around Breonna Taylor's case. And then also talking to business leaders. I've talked to um, several business leaders. Um, I've talked to several um, elected officials, um, Metro Council, and um, our uh, state officials. And so it, it's important that everyone on both sides of the aisles, uh, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, whether they're victim advocates groups or whoever, anyone who is who is, has influence and, and has touches, they, we all have to to come together on this issue and figure out what it means to have something different in order to have a better Louisville. There are a lot of demonstrations that are occurring around the nation that, of course, have been occurring in Louisville, too. With a few exceptions, mostly are peaceful. There's a Courier Journal article by uh, uh, Morgan Watkins. His title is Cameron Probe held by uh, FBI Ballistics. Um, he agrees that the demonstrations have been pretty much peaceful, with, with the exception of uh, the first two nights. The video photographed by the local channels, uh, TV channels, demonstrate the peace protests were, were been largely peaceful. What's the ACLU's position on the Louisville protests? You know, I will uh, speak more from um, a, a personal um, standpoint right now. Our organization is in some litigation right now uh, around the protests, but as I mentioned before, I was downtown on May 29th, really that first evening. I, I guess it was the second evening. I think Thursday was the first night. And then Friday was when you saw um, a lot of people in the streets. And, you know, I, I'll never forget we were, it was about 930. It just now gotten dark. And, and we were actually about to leave. And we were right on, I guess, between 5th. Uh, in Jefferson and 6th and Jefferson right there and, and we were actually about to leave and, and I was actually parked um, east and so my, I was walking toward my car and all of a sudden we saw this uh, tanker truck pull up and it got right there at the corner um, right right at 5th Street in, in Jefferson and what we saw where there was people standing in the street maybe about 50 to 100 folks in, in the street, and there were some people who started to sit down in front of this tanker truck, and so we went and to, to tell them to stand up, that it was dangerous for them to be seated, and we literally was in front of this truck less than five seconds before I started smelling something. I'd never been tear gassed before, and I thought maybe it was just the fumes from, from the truck because the truck was so big. And, and, and I turned to my friend and I said, hey, do you smell that? And the next thing you know, you know, I'm, I'm coughing, I can't see, my nose is running. And literally, my friend had to take my hand and my eyes were closed and had to lead me out of the crowd. And it was after that, I think, that we ended up getting out of downtown about 
10.30 at that point, like, to the car and home. And it was after that point where you saw people started um, busting out windows of businesses. And so I, I think for me personally, to hear LMPD or those officers, whoever they were, I think Kentucky State Police may have been down there at that point as well, to say that it was the protesters who agitated and started, it wasn't. It, it, it was the police. And I think that when you look at other nights and incidences where there's been conflict, Anytime the police are there and they're there in riot gear, they agitate. And so what sense does it make that you have people that are in the streets screaming and yelling for justice and you uh, meet them with, uh, uh, with with riot gear? That's agitation. And so um, I, I will continue to uh, stand by that and I will continue to uh, denounce the way um, LMPD um, has responded to, to protesters. How do you keep a protest peaceful? You've obviously you know, got some opinions right there, but are there other ways to, to keep a, a protest peaceful? That, that's a real upsetting thing for people who put their lives on, uh, on the line there to be peaceful and, and uh, resisting, but not using violence, but then they end up, maybe some people do, begin to create a, a, a violent atmosphere that ruins a peaceful uh, protest. Yeah, you, you know, for me, um, I, I don't believe in um, trying to um, determine or um, tell folks how they should respond emotionally to years and years of injustice by the police state. I think that what you're seeing here in Louisville and actually across the country, um, it's not just Breonna Taylor. It's not just the case of Breonna Taylor. I think that Louisville has been boiling. Um, Louisville has been at this point where at any at any time it was going to explode, and it just happened to be um, around Breonna Taylor's case. And so I think that to, um, to try and talk to um, protesters or to say how people should be reacting is not fair. I think that it, it takes away from uh, people's trauma and what people are really feeling deep down inside. And so, you know, there's some days that I am out and about and I feel a sense of empowerment and, and, and joy and liberation of being out and, and, and talking to folks and, and, and chanting and screaming. And then there's some days I'm out and I'm angry. And there's some days that I'm out that I'm sad. But what we have to understand and realize is that we as a community, people have been traumatized. Some people have been traumatized for generations after generations. Some people are being uh, traumatized in this state of, of what we're seeing right now. But to, to tell someone how they should react, especially when you look at the totality of Breonna Taylor's case, especially when you look at from how our elected officials, how the mayor and how LMPD has tried to suppress the story. And once you continue to hear more facts of the story of, of you know, when, when the um, incident report was, it said no injuries. How are people not supposed to be angry? How can we tell people how they should respond to that? To know that that police were uh, trying to get Glover off of Elliott Street due to gentrification. How can we tell someone um, to, to be peaceful? How can we tell someone not to be angry and upset when they see a police officer in riot gear? It's raw emotion. And so um, I, I think that what we're seeing is that our police state has over and over again brutalized black communities and have been able to get away with it. Individual families and as a whole communities have suffered from it. And um, uh, people are tired. And, 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 and that's what you're seeing now. Yeah, I totally hear you. But I, I'm concerned here that the Trump administration is claiming that the current demonstrations have become violent. And 
voters should should support the Trump Pence ticket so they can reestablish law and order. Joe Biden he is now claiming uh, also addressing the, the incidences of violence in, in the U.S. Uh, cities. What would you say to Trump and Biden? What would you tell them uh, concerning their candidacy and the U.S. presidency? I, I would tell them that violence is the the, the police state and uh, the oppression of, of black people for decades. Uh, that's what violence is. And, 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 and for, for them to shift and talk about violence being of, of, of folks in the streets yelling for justice is absurd. And, and that type of rhetoric that they're using holds up um, white supremacy. And, and that's what it is. It's, it's white supremacist rhetoric from Biden and from Trump. And, and I will stand by that all day long. And, and I think that what we've seen historically is when you saw race riots or you, you saw uprisings and, and you saw people in the streets during the civil rights, it's the same thing as that uh, 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 white supremacy and racism has, has tried to um, hold up and, 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 and keep this um, a, a structure uh, to, to keep uh, populations, a certain population and a certain people oppressed and down. And, and, and that's what we're seeing, you know, back in the day of civil rights, you literally had people uh, uh, fighting for and marching for and sitting in um, so they could vote. You, you saw people marching and, and, and sitting in and, and asking for justice so they could uh, get education. And so it, it's the same thing as, as we're seeing now. You know, what black folks want um, in, in, in this nation right now is, is that we want to be able to exist in society, in society the same way that white folks are able to exist. We want to be able to go to the park and someone not call the police on us because we're black. We want um, to be able to uh, go for a jog and not be ran down by two ex-police officers who, who look at us as criminals because we're, we're running in an all-white neighborhood. It's absurd. We just saw the same thing um, in, in Kenosha where you saw a young, a white 17-year-old male um, literally uh, gun down uh, people who were peacefully protesting. And, and, and this person is, 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 is being uh, seen as a, a, a hero and being supported by Trump. If that's not white supremacy, I don't know what it is. And so um, I, I would say to them, both on the, the Democrat side and the Republican side, that we have to completely uh, eradicate and, and tear down white supremacy. And, and that's why you see people in the streets here in Louisville, Kentucky, and across the nation. Okay, but what, what are the policies you'd like to see the upcoming president implement? I mean, I, mean I, I think that, like I said before, one of the biggest things is, you know, the qualified immunity, if, if you're talking specifically about policing. But I also think that we have to look at, uh, at all policies. We have to look at why has our nation not increased the minimum wage? Why is it that uh, folks here in our nation uh, do not have a working, uh, a living working uh, wage. And so when we talk about uh, radically changing communities, it's radically changing um, how people are able to live in, in day to day. Uh, we saw that there was a stimulus check given to folks for unemployment, that folks were uh, getting, um, I, I think it was $600 a, a week, which uh, equates to, to uh, uh, 
$15 an hour and you see people who don't want to go to work, go back to work because they're not making half of that now. And so um, when we talk about what we need to do to um, eradicate these systems of white supremacy, we have to go back to basic needs. And one of those basic needs is closing that wealth gap, closing that education gap. And so making sure that people have enough money to to feed their families, to pay bills, making sure that health care is accessible to folks. What's crazy is I just went to the doctor the other day, um, went to a, an instant care facility. I'm, I'm fully insured and, and I had a hundred dollar copay and, and I hadn't been to the doctor for a while. I'm, I'm usually a pretty healthy person, but to have to pay a hundred dollar copay um, to get a strep, uh, strep throat test is absurd. Um, why, why is that right now in our nation? And so I think that we have to really um, understand how our nation um, has created and continues um, to oppress certain folks and keep folks in poverty. And until we are really um, looking at policies that are going to um, impact those things, we will continue to see a nation the way we see it right now. You know, the, the uh, killing of Breonna Taylor uh, in Louisville uh, was over five months ago now, and, and uh, Attorney General Daniel Kramer has not yet completed the investigation of that event, and that, and that timeline has been delayed, it seems, in, in completing the investigation. What's the position of the Kentucky ACLU on the, the actions or inaction of the Attorney General? I mean, obviously, we um, feel like that it, it's been way too long. We feel like that there is no reason that Breonna Taylor was was murdered on March 13th and uh, we don't know um, an investigation hasn't been complete. We also know and, and see that there from the beginning when, when you look back the day the night that Breonna Taylor was murdered that LMPD appeared to be trying to cover up the case. Breonna Taylor's uh, mother was recently interviewed in Vanity Magazine and she talks about how the night of the murder that she went to um, her apartment and um, police said that she wasn't there, that she was at the hospital and she goes to the hospital and, and the hospital says we don't have her here and then she goes home and, and sees something on the news and then she's like oh my gosh and then she goes back to the apartment and so from the very beginning we've seen that there had been a cover up. We saw and we heard that they were police were questioning um, her family um, and asking if she had any enemies. Did anyone, um, did she have any uh, a type of conflict with anyone and so to know those facts of the case and then also to know that it's been five months it's way too long but at the same time uh, you know we want to make sure that there has been a, a thorough investigation but five months have been too long and, and again my personal opinion not necessarily the ACLU I believe now what we're seeing is that uh, we have the Kentucky Derby coming up this weekend and so um, I think that because things have taken so long that they are now um, waiting to make this announcement based on other things that are happening in, in the city. And so I think that after this week, after Saturday, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if next week on uh, Tuesday or Wednesday, we'll, we'll, we'll hear something. But that's just my personal opinion. So okay, if the, so. Uh, Kentucky General, uh, Attorney General does come back with a, uh, a decision that they are these officers are exonerated what would the ACLU position or action be yeah I, I mean uh, r right now I can't really comment on that I, I think that we will have to you know see what happens before you know I feel comfortable with uh, making some type of a statement uh, such as that and again for, for my uh, personal opinion and feelings on it you know I, I would like to to hope that th this city is able to come together in a way that that brings healing and I, and I 
I don't really know what that means or what that looks like right now, but there's a lot, not just around Brianna's case, but a lot in, in our city. And I think that unfortunately the, the murder of Brianna Taylor has shed light on a lot of things that needs to be changed within the city. Yeah, that's that's kind of what we're looking for in some ways to uh, heal all this uh, conflict in ways that uh, that's helpful for everyone. Yeah, and, and I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know what, what that's going to be. I, I think that uh, one of the first things is when you talk about uh, someone healing from something, um, I, I think the first thing is uh, people have to admit that they're wrong. They have to admit to the, the shortcomings um, that, that has occurred and happened. And I don't think that we've seen that in the leadership here. I don't think we've seen that with the leadership of the mayor. I think the mayor has continued to hide behind things and not make decisions, the, the correct decisions. And so, you know, uh, again, the, the city is, is is dealing with a lot of trauma right now. But I definitely think the first step of the healing process is getting justice uh, for Breonna Taylor. Okay. Uh, so we're down to one last question, Katura. We have a presidential election coming up. How important is this election and how important is voting? Well, I think that this uh, presidential election is probably the most important election in my lifetime. I, I think that we saw when we had Obama run and be elected, I think that that was a very uh, pivotal point in, in history to have a black man be our president. But I think that what what we're seeing right now, it's important in a different type of way. And, and I think that, you know, you hear people talk about a lot, you know, you have to vote like your life depends on it. And, and I believe that that's so true. I think that we have have to look at the totality of what the power that um, a president has. We've seen the last four years that the current administration has put certain uh, judges into the Supreme Court and is, is, is changing those judicial seats. And so those things are super important because um, the Supreme Court dictates and determines what type of laws and, and things can be uh, fought. So, I, I mean, I, I think that it's super important. I think that people um, have to get out and vote. All people need to get out and vote. Both sides need to get out and vote. It's super important. I mean, I, I can't stress enough how important it is, not only for the presidential election, but also here and uh, locally uh, across the state. We see uh, Senator McConnell has been in office pretty much my whole life. And um, I, I think... 36 when, years. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I was four years old when he was elected. And so I think that when you talk about how we're moving forward as a country, how we're moving forward as a state how are we changing the culture and climate there's a point in time where we have to get rid of the old guard i think that that is in, in any type of situation that you don't want the same type of leadership in any type of organization or any type of establ establishment for too long that people have to be willing to to change th their values and their ideologies are based on uh, society and I don't think that we've seen that with McConnell. And, and I think the last uh, four years of our uh, current uh, presidential administration, I think that we've seen a nation that has had several setbacks. And so, again, when we're talking about what does a society look like and a nation look like for all people, those folks are, are, are not speaking um, for all people. And so it's important. And, and, and I hope folks uh, do get out and vote and uh, really get engaged. No, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, what I would um, encourage people to do is um, if they want to keep up with some of the things that we're doing at ACLU, you can go to our website, uh, ACLU of Kentucky, and keep up with um, any type of actions. Also, you can follow us on Twitter or 
of Instagram with at the um, ACLU of Kentucky. And then I also would like to, one last thing is we have a group of folks called the Smart Justice Advocates at ACLU. And it's a group of folks who've been impacted by the criminal legal system. And we are a group of folks who do policy, look at policy and help push policy at the state level. And so if there's folks who are listening in that have been impacted by the criminal legal system, whether you've done a time in prison or have done time in, in jail or just been impacted or have a family member impacted, please get involved with our uh, smart justice advocates. Four ways to resolve conflict and solutions to violence. We have to say here as part of FCC regulations, we do not hear solutions to violence endorse or oppose any political candidate that is running for political office. So listeners, we are out of time. Our guest today has been Katura Herman, policy strategist at the American Civil Liberties Union of Kentucky and author of The No-Knock Warrant Ordinance that forbids the local Metro Police from entering a residence without permission of the... Before we leave you, we want to remind our listeners that Forward Radio is a participant in the current Gift for Good fundraiser sponsored by the Community Foundation of Louisville. If you read the Community Forum section of the Courier Journal September 13th, you know that the Gift for Good drive begins September 17th. All the programs that are scheduled for Forward Radio WFMP 106.5 Thursday, September 17th will focus on the Gift for Good fundraiser. Hope you have time to listen. If you're interested in donating, just visit our website at forwardradio.org and click on Support Forward Radio 91720 Gift for Good Louisville. The link will take you to the webpage that explains how to donate. It's easy. Forward Radio is a non-profit, commercial-free radio station. All of us who work for Forward Radio are volunteers. As a member of the Pacifica Network, our programming combines national shows like Democracy Now! and Rising Up with Sonalia. With local programmings covering the full spectrum of community issues, black lives, the environment, mental health, addiction, sustainability, science, literature, performing arts, single-payer health care, public schools, veterans for peace, climate change, solutions to violence, critical thinking, prisons, civics, and elections, Kentucky politics, the works of local nonprofits, and much more. While we are all volunteers, we are proud of the programming we have produced and the voices we have amplified. While everyone who works for Forward Radio works for free, it does require a revenue stream to keep the lights on. All of our basic operating costs amount to only $20 a day. We can't do this without your help. The COVID situation has limited our fundraising capacity. So, the Gift for Good drive is critically important. Hope you enjoy our programming and thanks for your consideration. I'm Jeff Johnson. Our program will be repeated Tuesday, September 15th at 8 a.m. and again Wednesday, September 16th at 6 a.m. We will place the Solutions to Violence program that features Katura Heron in our archives Wednesday, September 9th. To listen by our archives, visit our website at forwardradio.org. Scroll down to Program Archives and then scroll down to Solutions to Violence. That features Katura Heron. For more information and a schedule of programming that will surprise and delight you, visit us at forwardradio.org and click on broadcast schedule. Until next time, I'm Jamie McMillan with Jim Johnson for your co-host for Solutions to Violence. Thank you for listening.